Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Thursday, March 16th, and I'm Kristen Beard-Adams, President of the City Club Board of Directors. Around this time, one year ago, today's speaker, Cleveland Metro Parks Zoo Executive Director Chris Kuhar, joined us on stage and delivered remarks that many of our children would describe as so lit they, they were interrupted by a fire alarm. It was, in fact, a powerful speech, including an exciting update on the birth of Kayembe, the baby gorilla, the zoo's first in its 140-year history born there, and, of course, a testament to the tireless wildlife conservation efforts that take place right here in Cleveland and around the world. We are so pleased to welcome Director Kuhar back to the City Club for a continued conversation on the groundbreaking work that he and his Cleveland Metro Park Zoo team continue to do, followed, of course, by our traditional City Club Q&A. Throughout history, zoos have evolved from menageries to scientific institutions, omnipresent in cities throughout the country and around the world. Zoos connect communities, not just to life-changing educational programs and con conservation programs, but also demonstrate the important role that zoos play in confronting known and emerging threats to species survival in the wild, and to help ensure a deeper understanding of the impacts to human communities and the habitats we share. Much has transpired at the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo since Chris Kuhar's last visit to the City Club. This includes work that is underway on Bear Hollow, an expanded habitat for the zoo's Andean and sloth bears that opens this year, <clears throat> and design plans for the zoo's primate forest are underway that will transform and significantly expand its rainforest into a 140,000 square foot world-class indoor destination. Chris will share a bit more about these and other exciting developments and share insights on how the impact and reach of the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo continues to grow. Chris Kuhar was named Executive Director of the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo, Metro Park Zoo in 2012. He was, has devoted a great deal of his career to work with primates, previously serving as the zoo's curator of primates and small mammals, and prior to that, spent five years at Walt Disney World's Animal Kingdom Park in Florida. Also joining us on stage is our moderator of today's forum, Gabrielle Kramer, a reporter and producer with IdeaStream Public Media. Gabe is a graduate of Kent State University's journalism program and a member of the Asian American Journalist Association and the Filipino American National Historical Society. If you have a question for our guest speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. Or you can tweet your question at the City Club, and the City Club staff will do its best to work that into the second half of the program. Members, guests, and friends of the City Club in Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Chris Kuhar and Gabe Kramer.
Thank you all for coming. I'm glad to be here and joined by Chris. You know, Chris, it's easy to say, let's pick up where you left off, right? And, and we will do that. You know, I think we all have memories going with our families or going with our classmates to the zoo. And we see the exhibits, but we don't know a lot about what's going on behind the scenes, behind the exhibits. And, you know, to a lot of people, zoos are menageries. It's, it's, it's a place to uh, see the animals, observe the animals, but there's a lot more to it than that. There's a lot of science and studying that goes on, right? Right, yeah. So I think when, when we talk to friends, when people get close to us, I think what they're most struck about is the complexity of what a modern zoo is, right? So I'll, I'll just sort of give one example. So if we decide to breed, oh, I don't know, gorillas, for instance, and, and you have a baby gorilla, it's so much more complicated than, you know, when a mommy gorilla loves a daddy gorilla very much, you get, you know, a baby gorilla, right? And, and, and just the selection of those animals, right? So, so the association of zoos and aquariums, uh, we refer to it as AZA. That's, the, that's the, really the highest level of accreditation standard for zoos in North America, arguably in the world. Sorry, um, can you, AZA standing for? Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Gotcha. And, and in the 80s, you know, so people, that's like 40 years ago, in the 80s, uh, AZA set up species survival plans, or what we refer to as SSPs. We like our acronyms. You're going to get gotcha, a lot of acronyms gotcha. today. Um, so what those SSPs do is really document all of the animals in a population, where they are, who they're related to, who their parents are, who their cousins are, who their offspring are. So when we make a breeding recommendation, it's based off of genetics. We want to make sure that we're maximizing genetic diversity in what's essentially a closed population. We just don't go grab gorillas from DRC and bring them into our zoo. So we have to manage those genetics. So there's science that goes into that. We've layered on top of that behavioral uh, research where we look at the traits of these individual animals. So maybe the genetics aren't perfect, but this particular animal is better in a breeding group. This animal doesn't get along well with others. This animal um, needs the support of an, uh, another younger animal. All those sorts of things play into it. And then you add on top of that research on longevity, heart disease, diet. Well, our team has done research on uh, diet. So stop me if you've heard this before. Gorillas have, uh, they're subject to heart disease, particularly Males, particularly older males, sounds familiar, right? And, and, that, and that is tied to genetics, but it's also tied to diet and exercise. Sound familiar, right? So all of the things that our doctors are telling us apply to these gorilla populations. So Dr. Elena Les did research at Case Western Reserve University looking at changing gorillas away from a biscuited diet, stay away from simple sugars and simple carbohydrates. Again, you've all heard this narrative before, right? <laughs> It ties directly into how we manage our populations. And so when you're looking at a, a zoo, really the core to a zoo, what I feel a core to a zoo is a, is a research program. So you can continue to evaluate and you continue to make your husbandry better. We're not just a static scientific institution that talks about it. We apply that science to what the decisions we make every day. And tomorrow we'll probably learn something that we're doing wrong and we'll fix it and we'll do it better the day after. So there's going to be people who say, oh, you go to the zoo, it's just animals trapped in cages behind bars or however you want to phrase it. It's no longer that. There are efforts on your part to prolong the lives of endangered species and to help benefit these animals in the long term. Yeah, I think that what, it's interesting. I would never tell you that zoos are perfect, True. right? But I would also argue that neither are hospitals, neither are schools. What we have to be doing is continually updating how we're taking care of the animals and what we're working towards. And what you see in a modern zoo now is education programs that are they're very complex, conservation programs that are very complex, 
and spaces that we're, we're kind of redesigning how we exhibit animals so that the people are in the small space and the animals are in the large space. And that's not what was being designed in the 50s and 60s, but it's the way we're looking at exhibits today. There's another side of the coin for zoos. It's beneficial to the animals, but it's beneficial to us. We like going, right? And, you know, I think to some people, they think, okay, I'm going to go to the zoo and I'm going to learn how tall a giraffe is and how heavy an elephant is. But there's more to be learned at the zoo these days. Yeah, for sure. Um, so first of all, facts are interesting, right? We like facts because they're testable, right? We can evaluate whether the student learned something. We can evaluate whether the teacher taught something. Um, and facts are really powerful in zoos because that's what people want to know. How tall is that giraffe? How much does that elephant weigh? Where does that animal live? Um, but the reality is, is you know, we carry the world's facts around in our pocket right now. And I would, I would argue that we're not better off as a result of that. So what, the way we're thinking about our education programs is not just about teaching facts. We'll continue to help support school districts to do that. What we want to do is encourage people to think about those facts. We, our education programs are based in appreciative inquiry. We want you to make a, a question and think about the information and, and evaluate whether that's important to you. As we look at our education programs for the long term, we're thinking differently about behavior and behavior change. We want people to come to the zoo, and as a result of that experience, they're doing something different in their lives. And historically, that has been, well, you should do this for the environment. Don't drink out of a plastic water bottle, this, that. But I think what we're seeing now is an evolution where we're starting to make connections, not just between the environment, but the environment and people, right? I, I just started by saying all these connections between gorilla health and human health. That's pretty powerful. Yeah. The advantage that zoos have in terms of an education space, any of you who have kids, those of you who are in school now, you know that sometimes it's really hard to engage in something if you don't find it interesting. Right? If you don't find it something that interests you, you often say, well, I, I don't like that, or I don't, it's too hard. It's not necessarily that it's too hard, it's just that you're not interested in it. People love animals, sometimes to a fault, but people love animals. And that's a really interesting way for zoos to make that connection. And we're using that connection not only to do the fact thing, but also talk about what's the responsible way to deal with animals, to help people understand that it's not just about animals. And sometimes people think that the zoo only cares about the animals. For us, it's not about the animals. It's about animals and the environment and health and how people interact with the environment and how animals depend on the environment. This is, it's a very interconnected thing. And that's why we get active around topics like, um, you know, the Big Cat Public Safety Act or dangerous wild animal legislation in the state of Ohio. We want people to understand the facts and also encourage them to think about it and understand the inherent connectivity between animals, humans, and the environment. Chris and I were speaking earlier this week and I was telling him, with all due respect, the zoo's not a place that I think to go all the time, right? But I have a brother and a sister, they've got two young kids, and they love going. They love going to the zoo, they love seeing the animals. It's really, you know, for a lot of us it might appear that this is a place for little kids to go, but you know, last time I was there, I was there for the Asian Lantern Festival and there are the, you know, the Zoo Lights events. These are all a lot of fun. You're telling me that, you know, we're changing the way or you're changing the way people view a zoo, that it's not just a place for kids. It's a place for young adults or older adults can go and have a good time, right? Yeah, you're not unique. We hear that narrative all the time where I came to the zoo when I had kids and then the kids got to be like 12, 13 years old and we stopped coming. And then I came to the zoo when we had grandkids and the grandkids got, and we stopped coming. And I find that interesting because people don't say that about museums, 
right? So uh, it's interesting that people have associated zoos with a childlike experience. And maybe that's the way we've marketed ourselves historically. But what we're doing is really engaging in science and engaging in environment and engaging in conservation in a way that applies to all age groups. So what we're really trying to do is rethink how we, how we market ourselves, how we talk about ourselves. And one of the things is events like Asian Lantern Festival or Wild Winter Lights. People see that and they, they come back, right? It's almost like they needed an excuse. They didn't want to come to the zoo during the day on a Tuesday because that seems childish. But I'll come if there's an evening event and, oh, is there beer there too? That's, it's even better, <laughs> right? So we're trying to think about the ways to bring people back in. And then when they're there, then that's the opportunity to, to inform them about what the modern zoo is. It's not the zoo that you came to as a kid. Trust me, if it was, I wouldn't be working there. If it was the same, kid, the same zoo that I came to in elementary school, um, from Lorraine County, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be here. It's a completely different experience. Those events, certainly, in the beer helps, but the, <laughs> the idea of it, an educational experience as an adult as well, right? I mean, I go to museums a lot, and I learn about the art, and I learn about if it's a science museum, I learn about the science, and you, you're saying people need to think about the zoo as being kind of a science museum and learning things that kind of way in terms of conservation and all the programs and how to be more responsible as a human being in terms of helping the animals, right? Absolutely, and I think that the other pieces, where we have probably missed the mark is we, all of our conservation programs have historically been global conservation programs. So we've talked about lions over there or bears over there. They haven't really been local and I think that it's hard sometimes for people to make that connection. And I think what we're trying to do is rethink that and, and help people understand that, again, human health is tied to the environment. Human health is tied to animal health. You know, we may have had a pandemic recently that had something to do with animal health, right? And it probably won't be our last pandemic. People need to understand how humans and how animals and how habitat are all interconnected. And that's not a kid's message. That's a very adult message. And there's also a connection to the economy and environmental health. You know, just watch what happens to your produce prices over the next couple me weeks when the flooding in California impacts the, all the produce that we're getting, right? There's a direct connection between environment and economics and humans that we haven't done a good job telling that story up to this point. A reminder to anyone here and anyone listening on our live stream, if you have a question or a comment you'd like to try to get in at the second half of the show, you can send us a text message, 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794, or you can find us on Twitter at The City Club. We're going to switch over to talking about conservation. Um, you know, what's a lot of the programs that you mentioned, all those acronyms that you made me think about, what are some of the programs that you still have going on? You've had one since 1995, almost 30 years of making. That's, um, you know, that took a lot of money to put together, right? Yeah, so we started doing uh, international conservation work in 95. So in those 28 years, we've committed more than $10 million to international conservation. And that's above and beyond what the Metroparks does to preserve and restore land here in Cuyahoga County. That's, that's globally, right? And then when you look at AZA, the, the network of 200 plus AZA member organizations, we contribute about $217 million to conservation annually. That's, that's a billion dollars every five years. Like, I feel like Dr. Evil, that's a billion dollars. That's a, that's a lot of money, right? Yeah. So that being said, a couple years ago, the UN said that a million species are on the brink of extinction. You know, there's, every time I turn on the weather, there's a new term that I, you know, 
atmospheric river and, and bomb cyclone and polar vortex. I never heard these terms before. There's flooding and there's fire and all of this stuff is happening. So it doesn't matter what you think caused it. It doesn't matter what your political view is. Mother Nature is telling you that something is different, right? Our zoo, we've had, we've had 500 year floods in my 10 years as director. Now I'm no math major, <laughs> but something's different, right? So I think what we have to recognize is that these are, these are really people issues. They're not biological issues. They're not animal issues. These are people issues. And that's why you see academic departments are starting to create majors that didn't exist when I was going to school. Conservation psychology, human dimensions of conservation biology, human geography, because they're recognizing that these are human issues. Humans are the problem, but humans are also the solution, right? So when you look at what our zoo does for conservation, we don't do a lot of biology work. I don't have staff on the ground chasing rhinos in Africa. What we do is we do training. That's what we're good at. We're, we're, we're good at helping existing conservation programs support their programs. So for instance, in Rwanda, we work with the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund, and there's a program in Rwanda called the Memoirs Program, which is essentially like a capstone college program for students at the University of Rwanda. We've mentored over 80 students through that Memoirs Program. We have a Cleveland Metro Park Zoo internship at the Fossey Fund. We've put over 20 students through that internship program. Many of them are working for the Fossey Fund full time or they're working in other conservation organizations in Rwanda and throughout Africa. Currently, my team is doing professional development for the Fossey Fund staff. 50 staff members are doing that and it's largely focusing on empowering women in Africa, which has culturally not been a priority for a long time. So, all of our, our programs are focused on people. We work with the Andean Bear Conservation Alliance. We started the Andean Bear Conservation Alliance, and we've been doing training on monitoring. And, and we don't, it's not the colonial version of conservation where we come in and say, this is what you need to, to do to protect the species. We work with existing people on the ground. We work with existing NGOs, and we ask them what they need, and we look to provide that assistance. And it's almost always around training. It's almost always around capacity building. It's almost always people, right? It's never animals. We're not helping the animals directly. We're helping the people. So that begs the question, all right, well, why, why don't we do more of that here in Northeast Ohio? And I think that's the next step. I think we can provide some of that conservation training, some of that conservation leadership. We can work to develop that with students here in Northeast Ohio, with, with conservation groups here in Northeast Ohio. Ironically, they haven't asked, right? We get asked by the international groups. We haven't been asked here locally. So that's part of the narrative, right? That's part of kind of rethinking about who we are. But the key point here for me is that conservation and conservation solutions are about people and they're not separate from economics. They're tied directly to economics, they're tied directly to education, and they're tied directly to human capacity development. The idea of not being asked, how do you, how do you fix that? How do you change that? Do you want to do more reaching out locally? Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think we've been really sort of uh, looking in We've been really focused on our existing programs and making sure those programs go. I think that we're in the process of, like a forum like this, talking about how we're thinking differently about conservation, how we're thinking differently about supporting our local community. I think part of the narrative is that people say, oh, well, it's the zoo, all they care about is animals. Well, that's not the case. I just, we, we, do, we do people things to support animals, but to support the environment, and we just haven't done a good job telling that story. I don't think any zoo 
really has done a good job telling that story. And I think we're on a path where that becomes a better narrative, and I think that opens lines of communication to do exactly what you said. And I think a way that you mentioned previously before this is, you know, you're not just studying species and animals. You're studying the habitats in which they live and those, the science behind that affects us as human beings, right? For sure. For sure. And, you know, let's talk about, you know, one thing you touted was the training programs you have. I mean, you have a lot of people um, who work for you, but also people who are, you know, involved in learning from you as well and how they can be an advocate or um, helpful in preservation and conservation moving forward. Yeah, so we're in the process right now of a community engagement project where we're actively reaching out to the community and asking the community, what can we do to help? What can, we, what can we provide? We have a youth advisory council where we engage students in, in both CMSD and, and in the surrounding suburbs to say, all right, well, where, where are places where we can best help those students? And what we're starting to hear is a lot of that narrative is in the social sciences, which seems odd for a zoo to be engaged in social sciences, but everything I've said up to this point is really focused on the social sciences, right? So that's, that's really a sweet spot for us. Uh, talking about leadership, talking about leadership development, those are things that I think we can, we can provide assets to the community and we're in the process of developing what that looks like. I, I can't get over the idea of, you know, here we are as human beings thinking about climate change and flooding and drought and all these things and we're having to worry about it for ourselves, and you and your staff are thinking about it from a different perspective, uh, more about habitat, uh, more about you know, thinking about the animals involved. You know, we think of it you know, as taking on a burden to fix these problems, um, but you're taking on the extra burden. What's that like for you and your staff to you know, have to think even more thoroughly about other species besides us? Well, I would say it's simultaneously terrifying and invigorating, right? It's, and most of my team is doing this because they have a passion for animals or they have a passion for the environment. And, and we're doing this because we think it's important, right? And as, as I look at, you know, the, the rest of my career, I want to make sure that we're not just doing more of the same. Like we have an opportunity now as people are starting to think differently and there's different narratives about the environment, about climate change, about human-animal interactions. This is the opportunity to change that. So yeah, it's, it's, a big, it's a big lift. But I think what we try to look at is where can we be valuable to the community and where can we show those impacts rather than think about the negative and oh my gosh, it's, it's overwhelming because that you're just gonna shut down, right? You have to look at what, what progress you can make. And I'll tell you, when we've been able to sort of um, interact with the, the students that have gone through our program in Rwanda and see how excited they are about their future, that makes it really rewarding. That, that, that's, that makes it worth that time and effort. And I think that we'd love to be able to just expand upon that. A reminder, if you'd like to join the conversation, if you're watching the live stream, you can text us 330-541-5794, 330-541-5794. Twitter will work as well at the City Club. Chris, now's your chance to uh, sell me on the zoo again. All the cool things that are coming up and happening at the zoo. The primate forest is kind of the, the big thing that is yeah. coming. Tell us about that, what it is, and what we can expect. So if you haven't caught on now, we're, we're really looking to try and think differently about our zoo and the future of our zoo. Um, and I think that, that centers around innovation. So if you've seen the capital projects that we've built over the past 10 years, we've really focused on, uh, again, putting people in the small space and putting animals in the big space creating multiple habitats so animals can be rotated through that habitat that provides us flexibility of management, you know, maybe even more habitats than you have animals, right? 
with th those are existing uh, concepts. One of the things that we still have struggled with, and, and many northern zoos have, is the animals that people get most excited are tropical animals. And even though this winter's been really mild, we still live in Cleveland. And it's still cold here, like, 13 months out of the year, it feels like. So, so one of the things that we're looking at innovating is a, a roofing material for an expansion of the rainforest. And the roofing material is called ETFE. Um, the advantage of it, it is it, it's built from silica. It's built from sand. It's not built from petroleum. Um, it's lightweight, so you can use it over extremely large spans. You're starting to see this in sports stadiums around the U.S. Um, for us, the biggest thing is it allows ultraviolet light to penetrate. So it's lightweight. You don't need a lot of infrastructure. So what you can do with this material is you can build what, is, what amounts to a giant greenhouse. You can create complex, interconnected gorilla exhibits or orangutan exhibits, and you can put this under ETFE, and you can grow trees. And you can grow trees, and you don't need grow lights. You don't even need lights to, to light the building because it's basically daylighted, right? And if you can do that, right, if you can put animals into a space where they get access to ultraviolet light, they get access to plant material, they're on a soft substrate, they have access to plants and bugs, and, and, but they're inside. Now we're, now we're talking about something completely different. Now we're not talking about inside versus outside. We're talking about what we really should be talking about with animal exhibits is do you provide the fundamental uh, experiences for that animal to have good welfare? And that's what primate forest would do. The other thing that we're trying to do is then take all of the training, all of the stuff that's happened historically behind the scenes, and it's happened behind the scenes not because we're hiding anything, it's because that's how the building was built in 1950. And in 1950, nobody even knew what cardiac ultrasound was, let alone thought that we were gonna to try to do it with an awake gorilla, right? So, so we, we wanna design this space so that you have those opportunities on show, you know, using my Disney lingo, on show, so that every guest can see that. They can see the training, they can see the amount of care that's going into the animals. So now you're building this from a innovative standpoint from the animal perspective. Historically, zoo exhibits were kind of themed, you know, the, the narrative around the building was either geographic, you're in Asia, you're in Central America, or taxonomic, like this is the snake building, this is the elephant building. But when we expand on the primate forest off of the rainforest footprint, we're gonna have all the taxonomic groups represented, we're gonna have all the geographic areas represented. So that's a perfect time for us to flip that narrative and actually talk about habitat, talk about the importance of habitat. Again, talk about the importance of the connection between animals and, and people and habitat and why those things all fit together. That's why we're calling it the primate forest because the emphasis of the habitat is not going to be the animals, but it's going to be the forest, right? And then on top of all that, we're talking about an exhibit that's going to be very expensive. We're still in the process of design. We're still working out the final cost. But when we build that, there's a tremendous economic development boom that comes to Northeast Ohio by building this really big, expensive exhibit. There is a draw. There are people who go around the world going looking at zoo exhibits. There are zoo tourists that go around and chase the latest and greatest exhibits. This exhibit will be the place that people come to look at to say, I'm going to build a, a zoo exhibit in a temperate environment. They're going to come here and they're going to ask us. So it really kind of changes the, the narrative, both from an animal perspective, from a guest perspective. Can you imagine you know, coming to the zoo in January and being able to take your jacket off and walk around for two hours? You know, with climbing structures for kids and, and interactives that talk about the sustainable future of our city, not just about gorillas in Africa, but our city. That's a completely different narrative. And again, it's really exciting.
it's also a little bit terrifying. But, but we think that we have to try to break the mold and do something new. And we think that this is going to be a great opportunity to, to display everything that we've talk, been talking about. What if, on this platform, we could rewrite the narrative about what zoos are and how zoos think about our community and how zoos think about our planet? It's really exciting. Stay tuned, because i got a lot more details to work out. Yeah. But, but th that's where we're going now. Well, those details, it's, it's early, and I respect that. But is there a timeline that we can potentially expect of you know, when this gets started or the day that I can go in and walk for two hours with my coat off? If I had my choice, it would be yesterday. But um, it's not going to work like that. I think that this is, what we're going to see is this project is going to be built out in phases. Right? And we're going to be, be able to open up phases to the public and provide opportunity for folks to get in there and experience it as we build it out. Because it, it will be the, the largest project we've ever done in the history of the zoo. So from that perspective, um, you, know, you only get access to a project like this maybe once in a career. So you've got to make sure that it works right. And you said that people from other zoos are going to want to recreate this for themselves and learn from the Cleveland Zoo. But... Does this technology exist somewhere else? Is this, did this thought process for this, was this homegrown or did you learn from this elsewhere? Are there other zoos or other exhibits we can look to and say, oh, this is an example of what this might be like? So, yes and no. So, um, there are a couple of zoo exhibits that have used this type of roof material. The Buffalo Zoo has a relatively small building that uses this kind of roof material. Um, but there are some large buildings that we're sort of modeling this idea off of in Europe. Uh, Europe's been using this roofing material for a while now, and unfortunately, it's not surprising that Europe is always ahead of us on a sustainability front, right? So we're bringing that idea forward, and I think what we're trying to do is take what those European zoos have done and embrace the science in a way that European zoos don't do, I don't think, as well. Embrace that science and conservation messaging in this new narrative in a way that those European zoos, I don't think, do as well. So we're, we're trying to we're trying to cherry pick the good ideas and put them into one really great project. There are people who will come to the zoo from all over Ohio, but there are people who are going to come from out of state. There are people who will go to San Diego just for the zoo or yep. to Columbus just for the zoo. How much does this, how much do you expect this will be beneficial in terms of tourism, not just locally, but bringing people from around the country, around the globe? Yeah, so our nonprofit partner, Cleveland Zoological Society, is, is who really helps us raise the funds for these kinds of projects. And we've done an economic impact assessment, not only of the operational impact to the community, but of the construction cost to the community and what we think the tourism impact to the community will be. At this point, it's kind of guesstimate, right? We don't really know how the world is going to travel, but we, you know, if we align ourselves with you know, the tour tourism industry in Cleveland, I know that I see in the summer, I see people walking around the zoo with Chicago White Sox shirts on and Detroit Tigers shirts on. I know they're, I, did they come for the game and they're coming to the zoo in the afternoon or did they come to the zoo and they're going to the game at night? Um, I don't care, right? It's a good, it's a good, it's a good value for the, the city of Cleveland, right? So if we can build on that and, and those folks from San Diego are coming out here and seeing our great zoo, that's even better. As the city of Cleveland rebuilds and uh, you know, tries to develop across and, you know, not to ignore the develop, the lack of development on a lot of the east side neighborhoods, but the west side has developed much faster the last 10 years or so. The zoo being on the west side and, and kind of a, an interesting place where you're south of Ohio City in Clark Fulton, which has, mm -hmm. you know, seen a lot of development recently, and just north of Old Brooklyn, which is, um, you know, seeing its own uh, development as well. Yeah. Being 
a hub. Could you see the zoo as being a hub for even more development in the area, especially if this comes along? Because, you know, I'll admit, I've got some friends who recently moved to Old Brooklyn, and anecdotally speaking, they're saying, I think the zoo should be this thing where people would want to move to Old Brooklyn or move to this neighborhood or help build and develop around it. Do you see the zoo as being that kind of key player in development for Cleveland's West Side? Yeah, I think absolutely. One of the challenges is that I think people sometimes forget that we're part of the community because we're down in the valley, right? So, you know, there's the community up here and then we're right next door, but we're down 80 feet. Um, so I think that that's part of it. I think for us, a big part is making sure that there's the infrastructure for mass transit to get people in and out of the zoo, right? As we move forward with the Primate Forest Project, we're also going to be looking at our front entrance and making our front entrance more accessible for rideshare, for bus pickups and drop-offs, for, you know, to be able to utilize, to connect ourselves to the trail system that runs along Big Creek. So I think we absolutely have that ability, and particularly if we do what we hope and bring people from out of town, well, they're going to stop at those gas stations and those restaurants and, and all of that that's around there. There are no real uh, hotels in the area, right? you got to go a little bit further out to hit those. So those are the opportunities to provide economic development, and if we're bringing folks in like we hope, I think that's really powerful. A reminder, if you have anything you'd like to add, a comment or a question, and you're watching in the live stream, you can text us 330-541-5794 or on Twitter at The City Club. Uh, do we have anyone here now who has anything for us? We're about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Kristen Beard-Adams, President of the City Club Board of Directors. We're joined today by Chris Kuhar, Executive Director of the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo, and Gabe Kramer, reporter and producer with IdeaStream Public Media. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet at the City Club. You also can text your questions to 330-541-5794, and the City Club staff will do its best to work it into the program. May we have our first question, please. Thank you for such an informative presentation today. Um, last December, this may be a little outside your wheelhouse, but last December there was a um, bobcat spotted um, in the Metro Parks. And having lived um, on a barrier island in South Carolina before we moved here to be close to family, we used to see bobcats quite often. Since that sighting in December, has the bobcat appeared? Have any more been spotted? Uh, I'm not sure that I can answer that intelligently. I, I will say one of the things that we are seeing is be, as we develop wildlife corridors, as we go from rails to trails, as we make these connections, you're starting to see wildlife return, right? The, the trumpeter swans nested in Cleveland Metro Parks a couple years ago for the first time in, in decades. And we were part of the group that, that reintroduced trumpeter swans down at the, the lands that are now the wilds. Uh, 30 years ago. So what you're seeing is you're starting to see, again, people are the problem, people are the solution. You're starting to see nature rebound. And while I can't say specifically anything about that bobcat, it would not surprise me if we see more bobcats. Where every now and then we see a bear come back, right? People have to be able to live with animals. People have to be able to live with nature because whether you like it or not, they're there. And, and we, we, we need to find paths forward for that. Yes, there's a uh, new trend now about rewilding areas and about keystone species. How does the breeding program at the zoo in any area uh, mesh with the, that kind of thinking for uh, 
the climate and, and reforesting and turning the land back to a more productive, a more natural kind of environment? So I think that's a great question. And so obviously the Metro Parks owns property throughout Cuyahoga County. And that's, that's part of, typically that's protected land and then there's some restoration work going on. Where we really get involved is we have a couple projects where we are with partners reintroducing species to the wild. So for instance, we are reintroducing Eastern Plain garter snakes to Kildare Plains in Southwestern Ohio. Um, we have spotted turtle, uh, we've been part of some confiscations where we've been able to rescue those animals from the pet trade, get them healthy, and we've actually been in the process of reintroducing spotted turtles to habitats around Northeast Ohio and in the surrounding areas. We breed Puerto Rican crested toads, and we've introduced literally millions of tadpoles back to Puerto Rico in, in new breeding ponds. So we've been involved with that. We don't drive those, but what we do is we look for those opportunities where, again, where our skill set fits in with what these other conservation groups are working with. That, that's not gonna be a, an issue with gorillas or lions, right? No one's putting those back in the wild. But we do look for those opportunities where we can apply our skill set with animal husbandry and connect to existing conservation programs. Hi. Hi. Uh, we've seen a transformation of zoos from these places with cages and bars to more realistic habitats for the animals. At the same time, you're fighting an impossible fight between people want to see the animals, but then you've got gorillas that are brilliant and in the wild take up an enormous territory and are hard to find, even if you knew where they were yesterday. Do you think there's a future for the zoo where it goes the way of, you know, SeaWorld has stopped breeding whales because they're too big and too smart for what we're able to contain them? Are we going to continue with primate programs and will technology kind of keep up with our sense of humanity and uh, you know an appropriate way to care for these animals or do you think there's a different sort of path forward for the zoo like SeaWorlds? Yes. No, I, um, <laughs> I think that's, that's, a, that's a really deep question and I appreciate it and that's a conversation that we have internally all the time. I think where we were probably late to the game with a species like whales is we didn't do a lot in terms of research and change and, uh, and it stayed stagnant for a really long time. Compare that to great apes, chimps, gorillas, and orangutans, a lot of the, the husbandry research, a lot of the enrichment research, a lot of the welfare research started with those species. I think we're a lot further along. We know what those species need. And I just described to you what I think will be literally the world's best gorilla habitat. In 20 years, it may be out of date. And in some ways, I hope it is. I hope we've learned that much more and that we've able, been able to use that information to improve husbandry that we continue to evolve. We're gonna have to keep evolving or we're gonna have to keep changing how we uh, think about the species in our care. Will there be species that we get out of? Yeah, maybe it's because we can't do it right. You know, historically, we, we sent chimps away from our zoo because we didn't feel we had the right facility and we weren't going to have them immediately, so we sent them to a place where we thought they, that they would be better off. There's going to be situations where that occurs. There's going to be situations where, the, for whatever reason, there's just not a lot of that species left, right? That we don't, again, we're not importing, so if we don't have sustainable breeding populations, we're not going to have that species. So I think what you're going to see in zoos is fewer species in better habitats, right? So you're gonna see the space zoos may actually increase, but the number of species that are held there is gonna change. Now, 
there is, you, you mentioned the visibility, right? We, we struggle with that, right? If you're going through multiple habitats, you may go past a habitat and there's no gorilla there, but it's because they're interconnected and they're over in this space instead of that space. I think that's reframing guest expectations, right? We, I don't think people really want to see that sort of uh, jewel box ex exhibition of animals anymore. But when you go, you want to be able to see animals. So when you see them, it better be pretty cool. So that's our challenge, right? You may not see a lot of them, but when you see them, it should be a sense of awe and wonder as opposed to a sense of like, oh, that's kind of sad, right? <laughs> so that, that's our challenge is we, we have to balance visibility with that wow factor. And that's really how we're trying to think about this and all of our exhibits, quite honestly. Give them the space to let the animals be animals. That's the best show is when animals are doing what animals are supposed to do. Thank you. That is a cool and awesome vision of the future. Um, I wonder, in your future plans, uh, are you thinking about um, deeper collaborations with the health institutions in Cleveland? Do you have some? They're focusing on climate, bioregional, planetary health. And the other factor is schools, as you said in the beginning, are intergenerational. And uh, here in Cleveland, we have three intergenerational schools that focus on what is the pedagogy if you really take attention to kids and grandparents going to the zoo together. What does that create in the way of educational opportunities? Thank you. Yeah, I think they're great questions. And we have, we've worked with a lot of the healthcare institutions here in, in Northeast Ohio. They've assisted us on you know, procedures with our animals. We've, we've talked to them about programming. I think that as we evolve this conversation around primate forest, we're gonna, we're gonna deepen those conversations. The, the, the part about intergenerational education, I think is a really interesting concept, and we've had a number of conversations about that recently. For instance, if you look at our volunteers, our volunteers tend to be retirees, right? Because they have the time and the resources to be able to volunteer. But then we're also educating kids, right? But we do that separately. I, I think what, what we're trying to do, what I'm trying to do, is de-silo a lot of these things that we've been doing. So it's been a pocket here and a pocket there. And I think if we bring these topics together, we've always done research on health and on habitat and, and on science education. They've always been separate, right? So what, what's different here is you're, you're squashing it all together. And I think that there are some synergies that are gonna develop as a result of that. And we're still evaluating what that is and how to apply that in resources. We're deep into the process of programming. What are the interpretive experiences gonna be in, in primate forest and around the zoo? We're evaluating our, the future of our education program. What do we want it to be? Those are exactly the kinds of topics that we're trying to evaluate and, and look for partners to help us do it. We don't have to do it all our own. We don't, let's not reinvent the wheel. If there's partnerships here, we should be making them. Thank you. How would you identify your leadership style? And especially, you just mentioned volunteers tend to be older, you have younger, you know, businesses and organizations struggle with the different generations. How would you identify your leadership style, especially in light of working with different generations? Uh, if I was being honest, I'd probably have to say schizophrenic because I think I, I, don't, I don't necessarily have a, a, a true style. I think what, what I try to do is um, I, I want to try to provide an inspiration for my team to feel safe to, to try crazy stuff, right? In, in our profession, if things go wrong, it ends up on the news, right? So we need to make sure that we're doing it right. And there's a tendency to do it safe, right? And I don't think we're going to progress if we're doing it safe. So what I'm trying to do is, is pull the team forward. 
what that looks like for each individual is going to look a little bit different. Like some people like the challenge, some people need more support. So I try to be flexible in my management style based on which team I'm working with. I have some teams that are already, I, I've been spending the past 10 years pulling the reins, trying to pull them back, right? I have other te teams where I'm like, no, 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 we got to go more. So I think it de depends on the team. It depends on the individual. I think the biggest thing for us is not to be afraid to make a mistake, right? Not to be afraid to try something and have it not work. Not to, not to put out an idea that's too crazy because that's literally what we're trying to do. We're trying to reshape things and um, I'm trying to be supportive of that process because it is scary. It is scary. To, there is no playbook. We're reinventing this and I'd like to say that it's going to be perfect the first time. We're going to find out. We've got a Twitter question. So the Akron Zoo is with us today, including their CEO. We are blessed to have two amazing zoos so close to each other. How do the two zoos work together on their shared missions here in Northeast Ohio? That's a great question. I'll be honest. Every time we're at a professional meeting, Doug and I say, we have to go across the country to be able to have time to talk to each other <laughs> because we're, we're, we're running around with our individual organizations. I think you know, one of the real values of the AZA is we have this shared pot of knowledge, right? We have these shared ideas. We have these opportunities to talk. Sometimes it's in the public presentation, but sometimes it's in the lobby afterwards where you say, you know, we tried this and it really didn't work and I'm not going to present it on the podium because it was really that bad, but we all need to know, right? Or sometimes it's like, hey, I got this crazy idea. What do you think about it? I think though that is the true value to me of AZA. Yes, it's the accreditation standard. It's that, that good housekeeping seal of approval that, that what you're doing is, is right and it meets all the top standards. But for me, it's the conversations with peers, with, like Doug and like a lot of the other professionals, where we can say, hey, what are, you, what are you thinking about this? Are you comfortable with this? What do you think we need to do? And that's that opportunity for really, again, synergy and growth, and that's what we're looking for. You uh, mentioned uh, early on the idea of rotating animals through a series of different habitats, yeah. some of which are in the process of developing. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about how that, specifically with some examples, how that would benefit animals, other than just to change the scenery? Uh, in terms of what they need, um, what kinds of experiences yeah. might nurture them, and so forth? Sure. So I'll start by saying I think people think that because animals cover long distances in the wild, that they want to. In, inherently, animals like us exert as much work as they have to. So if, so if you're encouraging an animal to exercise, what you need to be able to do is move animals from different habitats and provide opportunities where you can go in and give them a reason, right? So we don't feed animals in bowls. We scatter feed. We hide it all over the exhibit and make them work, walk, look around for it, walk around for it. That increases the amount of movement that they see. So for instance, in African Elephant Crossing, we have one elephant group, but we have basically three yards. So we'll put the elephants into one yard, and then that gives the keeper staff the opportunity to set up the other yard, hide the food in that yard, right? So while the animals are finding all the stuff that they set up in the morning in the first yard, then midday we move them into the second yard, so they have to walk from yard A to yard B, forced exercise, right? And they get over to that space, and then they explore it. You know, no one's forcing them to, but they do because the keeper staff had the opportunity to go in there and set it up. And they could, in theory, go back to yard one, reset it, and move them back into that yard, right? 
So by having multiple exhibits, it allows the keeper staff, because we don't occupy space with the vast majority of our animals, so we have to be able to set it up while the animal's not there. So this allows them to sort of move through those spaces. And it is, there is some value in variety. There is some uh, value in, like in Roseboro Tiger Passage, we have four yards that we can connect A and B together today and A and D together tomorrow, or we can connect C and B or C and D. That variety provides different uh, exercise opportunities. It provides different enrichment opportunities. It provides different opportunities for those animals to get active and get exercise. It's really though about the care staff. It, it, it allows the care staff options to be able to be creative and think about ways to encourage that activity and encourage that health and well-being. If, if I may, we were talking before this about how some, oftentimes you're not training animals. You're, you're, you're not, so sometimes animals aren't even seeing the people behind the walls, right? Yeah, there are certain situations. For, for instance, our, our wolves are owned by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So in that situation, we don't actively train them because technically those animals could get reintroduced to the wild. They're owned by the Fish and Wildlife Service who introduces Mexican wolves and they, they could go out into the habitat. So if that's gonna happen, they should not have a friendly relationship with people, right? They should not have a, if I come up to this person, he's gonna give me food kind of relationship. So we don't train them like we train our gorillas or our elephants or our lions because I don't want any, if that wolf gets reintroduced, I don't want it coming up to people all the time begging for food, right? So there, we have to sort of change differently and, and adapt to each individual situation how we want to handle our animals. Sorry, I found that to be neat. Sorry. Um, text question for you, Chris. Uh, this is a little philosophical, but can you talk about the emotional relationships that you and others at the zoo develop with the animals in your care? Are these really two-way relationships, or do the animals just understand where their food f comes from? So I will say with 100% certainty that the animal care staff cares for these animals like they are their kids. And you know, when you have a large population of animals that you're, you're caring for, event, you know, inevitably an animal passes away, and that can be heartbreaking for the animal care staff. Um, it's harder for me to answer that question from the animal's perspective. I, I will say, I will say, I can stand there with food in Makolo, our gorilla, he's gonna react very differently to me than he will react to Laura or Brian, his primary caregivers, who interact with him on a daily basis. He'll take the food from me. He doesn't like me, but he'll take the food from me, right? So, so from that perspective, you know, does he love me like, the, that, that Laura, like Laura and Brian love him? I don't know, but I will say that he responds to them. I've seen, I've seen Makolo put his body positionally in between a stranger and one of his care staff. You know, he, he, almost, he almost acts as though they're, they're one of his group, right? So he, he sort of postures in a way that, no, I don't know who you are, but you shouldn't get close to her because she's, she's close to me. You know, the, the scientist in me says, well, that's anthropomorphism and you shouldn't talk about that. I think it's true. I, I, I've seen it happen. So... Uh, I don't think it's just a one-way relationship. I don't think it's a, just a give me food. Will they come up to you for food? Sure. But it's, it's more complicated than that. We've got another text question. So in addition to being a community hub, what are your thoughts on the future of the zoo as a potential hub for the performing arts, including recruiting local talent to elevate the experience? 
all innovating ways to connect people with wildlife? I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, we haven't talked about it a lot, but we have had performers come in. We have recruited uh, acting talent to come in and be part of our experiences. What that looks like in the future, I think what we're in the process now is trying to figure out, all right, what content do we want to contribute? What content do we want to communicate? And once we, have, once we have that finalized, and I think we're pretty close, then the question comes to how. How are we going to do that? I, I, my fear is I don't want to just say, yeah, we're, we're a place where, where the performing arts are going to thrive. Maybe if that fits in with what our mission is, I want to make sure that we're making sure that we have that really great connection between people and animals in the environment. And I think that you know, we, we, we do conservation programs um, where the performing arts are a very effective way of communicating conservation messaging, whether it's in Rwanda or whether it's in Uganda, because culturally it's relevant, right? And it fits in with them. And we let those communities determine what the most effective uh, ways of delivering the message are. Let's get to the message and then I'll figure out what the, what the most effective way of delivering that is here. There's another text question that um, comes from a eight-year-old at Campus International School. I don't, I don't think she That's sent fantastic. it herself. Um, <laughs> can zoos tell cities to build more in the city and not destroy the habitat of creatures in other places so that we can protect them? Hire them. I don't know who they are. Hire them. <laughs> um, so I, I think that that, I think that's a great question, right? Can I tell the city? I could try, right? I think what, what that's getting to is sort of where we're trying to get to in, in Primate Forest is you know, one of the interpreters we're talking about is can we provide an opportunity to think about what a sustainable city looks like? What a sustainable future it looks like? And does it have to be as hard as it is now? Can it be a greener, softer infrastructure? Can we revitalize the city? Can we sort of utilize the resources that we've already built out more effectively so that we continue to have cropland and we continue to have forests that are important. I think that that, that eight-year-old's right on track. I think, for me, the important conversation is, is that we can't continue to have environmental conversations separate from economic conversations. We can't have them separate anymore. They, they are one in the same. And it's silly to think that they're not. I know why it happens, because people have an agenda and they just want to talk about this little piece without talking about how it impacts everything else. But we have to have those conversations. We have to get uncomfortable with the fact that economics and the environment are inextricably tied to each other. And they're going to continue to be more tied to each other. So that's a really important conversation to, to be had. I hope that we're at the table and we're part of that conversation. We've got another text question. So what are the exhibits at the zoo that still need to be overhauled to bring them up to contemporary standards and your vision of what the zoo should be? So the irony of this, and this goes back to the question about what, you know, making sure that we're providing the right care for animals, I think that as soon as we get done, we'll have to start all over again, right? It's, it's a constant cycle because every time you build out a new exhibit, the other ones are getting older. So for me, you know, we're in the process of redoing some of the bear habitats in, in Wilderness Trek. The rest of those bear habitats have to go. Our seal and sea lion exhibits are, are, are next on the, on the list. Um, we've got some just general infrastructure things, things that people wouldn't notice. There's a, there's a kangaroo barn that needs to be replaced. That's, from a, that's not from an exhibition standpoint, from, but from an animal management standpoint, that needs to be replaced. Um, the, 
to, what's exciting to me about primate forests is I always talk about it from the context of gorillas and orangutans, but when you move gorillas and orangutans out of those spaces, those spaces are probably okay for a smaller bodied animal, right? So there's gonna be a series of promotions that occur, right? So there's gonna be a monkey that gets to move up and exhibit, and there's gonna be an even smaller monkey that gets to, to move up and exhibit. So we're gonna be moving that process through, and we're gonna to have to make decisions about animals in our care. Going back to you know long-term, we're not gonna have as many animals, so we may just phase out an exhibit and, and not replace it because either A, that, that species is, isn't accessible or from an operational um, sustainability standpoint, that's the right decision for us to make. Thank you for joining us uh, for today's forum featuring Chris Kuhar, Executive Director at the Cleveland Metro Park Zoo. He's been in conversation with Gabe Kramer of our primary media partner, IdeaStream Public Media. We also would like to welcome guests hosted by Brookside High School, Charles F. Brush High School, and the Cleveland Zoological Society. Thank you all for being with us today. Just as a reminder, we are off tomorrow, Friday, March 17th, as thousands of Clevelanders will make their way downtown <laughs> to celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Then next Wednesday, March 22nd, Robin Steinberg, founder of The Ball Project and incoming CEO David Gaspar, will join Alicia Bell Hardaway, law professor at Case Western Reserve University, for a discussion about the future of bail reform. March 24th, the City Club will welcome two groundbreaking Cleveland international filmmakers who have spent the last several years filming on the front lines of the war in Ukraine. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to Chris and to Gabe, and thank you members, friends, and guests of the City Club. I'm Kristen Baird-Adams, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.